The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hey, Chief, we need a neodymium power cell from a Cardassian phase coil inverter. You think you could help us out? That's an unusual piece of equipment. What do you need that for? No, we have to trade it for it. Yeah. It's kind of a secret. Well, I'm sure there's an old cell lying around here somewhere, but I don't have time to scrounge around for it at the moment. Well, what's the matter with you? Okay, let me show you a little something about incentive-based economics. Chief, may I ask you a question? Wouldn't you rather be doing something else right now? <laughs> Almost anything. But isn't there something specific you'd rather be doing? Uh, like, uh, going to the hollow suites, maybe? Sure. I bet you'd rather be kayaking right now, wouldn't you? You probably haven't shot those rapids in weeks. No interruptions, no maintenance schedules. Just you and the river. Mm. Well, that's what I'd be doing right now if Decker hadn't gotten sick. But I have to recalibrate all these EPS regulators so they don't interfere with the station's artificial gravity grid. What if someone else recalibrated the regulators for you, huh? Someone like us. You'd do that for me? Absolutely. Don't give it a second thought. Just go shoot those rapids. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I owe you one. Our pleasure, and Chief. About that power cell. Oh, yeah. I think I know where there's one. I'll have it sent up to your quarters. Thanks, Chief. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 8, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be well, everything is back to being all right today. Hope you enjoyed last week's reunion show we had with Jim Chapman and Jeff Schlemmer. A lot of fun there. Hope to do that again sometime in the future. Again, a lot of folks called in saying that the, that they enjoyed that. Today on the show, I want to talk a little bit about uh, schools, public versus private. A couple of items in the paper caught my attention on that. TV, arts, and the government are, are these tax credit issues that we're hearing about. Is that really censorship? Is that what it's all about? And the big item that caught my attention this week was on the issue of mandatory voting. Is it a democratic duty? Some people seem to think it is, and they're talking about making voting mandatory. But first off the top of the show, how's your corner of the economy been lately? Still got your job? Still working? Still, uh, you know, having a good standard of living? Because that might be changing very soon now if you take a look, not just because of the things you're hearing going bad in the economy, but if you listen to what some of the solutions that are being proposed about it are. And I think they scare me a little more than the downturn in the economy. I warned a couple of months ago back in March how, uh, uh, you know, the coming tide of anti-trade protectionism would soon be upon us where you got both union and left-wing interests calling for more government intervention in our lives higher taxes and the like and uh, of course that also means a lot of the politicians who are in power 
London's Mayor Anne-Marie de Sico-Best was in the media a couple of weeks ago uh, calling for greater intervention of federal and provincial governments to save the auto industry and the manufacturing center. And, uh, you know, we don't have a solution, she says, but we're very concerned and added that negative talk about Ontario is bad for Ontario. I think she was picking on somebody in the federal government there. What do you think? Now, a few union reps I heard lately suggested the same thing, that, uh, you know, the government should get involved. By the way, if you if you agree with them or you think uh, or you disagree with them, feel free to call in the show. Remember, this is a call-in show. 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join the conversation. Or if you want to you know, join us online or get a hold of any of the back, or, you know, the past uh, broadcasts of Just Right, you can visit justrightmedia.org, your one-stop shopping for the show, where you'll get all the information you need about the show. But again, we have a number of folks in our community, uh, you know, and general members of the public even, who happen to, uh, they might represent an interest or not, but they seem to be calling for the same thing. One of them that caught my attention was a letter to the editor in the London Free Press printed back on April 10th by a fellow named A.P. Richardson of Sarnia. Now, I don't, by the way, pick these letters to pick on the writers. Uh, Sometimes the ideas I pick are generally those that I see reflected by many people in the community, and they may be based on self-interest, they might be based on misunderstandings, they might even, uh, for all I know, maybe they got it right and I got it wrong, but that's what we're here to discuss, isn't it? Here's what he writes in the paper uh, on that day, quote, every imported manufactured item, clothing, electronics, furniture, etc., reduces employment in Canada. We should be encouraging self-sufficiency, by buying Canadian-made. Otherwise, while we may enjoy cheap goods now, there will come a day when we will not be able to afford even the imports, since we will have no jobs and no disposable income. Economists, politicians, and chief executives laud globalization because it raises the standard of living in the third world countries. What they neglect to mention is that it does so by decreasing the standard of living of the first world countries." Now, of course, you know, I've got to say the reason that they, the, the media, I guess, neglect to mention this is because basically it's not true. So it's not news, and it's in fact the opposite of the truth, which are all pretty good reasons to neglect the necessity of mentioning this non-fact, which is that you know our standard of living is going down because of trade with other nations. That is uh, just not the experience and not what the evidence shows. And another thing we have to keep in mind, uh, you know, when he says every imported manufactured item reduces employment in Canada, that's just simply not the case. Uh, It creates employment. The fact that whether it's made here or in Canada may reduce manufacturing here or may increase it. It depends. But if you want to be competitive with other people who are producing the same kinds of goods, the only way you can be competitive, and I'm telling you, the world is is going to be a much more competitive place in terms of labor because there are labor pools being unleashed all around the world uh, from the Soviet Union, India, uh, countries we didn't compete before, not because we didn't trade with them to some extent, but because they weren't even free among themselves within their own nations to provide for a lot of their own goods, and now they're starting to produce for themselves, which of course does affect us. But it's not a reason to uh, talk about the end of the world type of scenarios. I think, yes, we're going in an economic downturn. There are a lot of reasons for it. But we have to remember that jobs don't exist because of workers. They exist because of consumers. 
And the disposable income that the letter writer referred to, of course, was that of the workers, definitely not disposable income of the consumers, which is why all trade barriers eventually translate into a forced redistribution of wealth from one group of people within a country to another group of people within that same country. In other words, if you're going to stop imports coming in from another country, be it the States, be it Europe, be it anywhere, and it forces Canadians to pay more for the same good here, well, that's a lose-lose situation. In other words, the workers here are being almost subsidized because Canadians are being forced to buy from them with, and being deprived of their choice to buy from someone else. Now, of course, in the short term, it might be seen as a win-lose proposition for labor, but in the long term, it's a lose-lose proposition, as both the consumer and labor suffer the consequences of decreased wealth, which is decreased by production in society. That's one thing people fail to realize, is that the reason certain countries become efficient at what they do, there might be a lot of illegitimate reasons, and you have to take into account, yes, governments subsidize some of their, uh, their goods, they give special favors to their citizens. I did a whole show about that a while ago, and yes, there are a lot of unfair trade advantages between people. I mean, we can't grow bananas, and they can't do some of the things that, that we do in other countries. But that doesn't mean that you can't trade and that consumers in general um, don't get better off because what happens is capital is just moving from where it has been for a while and looking for new areas to go to. I think a lot of people are just discovering that and they're not quite sure where those new areas are going to be. Now consider obviously the inevitable logic of self-sufficiency. Um, if you follow it through, it's going to lead to poverty and subsistence. And I'll give you a perfect example of why that is so. You know, if it, if it makes sense to put a trade barrier or tariffs or whatever at the United States border, why don't we put one at the provincial borders? Or better still, why don't we put uh, one at the municipal borders? And let's go all the way. Let's put one at the every single backyard and division of property so that we can each be independent. And as you can see, as the smaller the unit becomes, you can see the problems. Can you imagine if you yourself had to be independent? You'd need at least 30 acres of land, I mean, just to grow your crops and have some animals and hope that nothing happens in between with the weather and all that stuff. So uh, the idea of self-sufficiency is, in, in that sense, that's more, more isolationism. That's not self-sufficiency. The irony is you get self-sufficiency by practicing free trade. Remember, other countries we trade with are talking the same way. And Canada, you have no idea how much business this country and Canadians do outside of this country. Uh, you know, we're almost like, uh, you know, the American empire in some areas. Canadian banking practically controls the whole Caribbean area. And so, and, and Canadians are being, uh, you know, employed in many areas around the world for their expertise and te from technology to just their know-how. And so, you've got to consider it's always a two-way street. And who do you think... Uh, you know, that we've been selling our products to, to the people we're talking about now putting tariffs on. And, boy, that's, uh, that's dangerous talk. Um, um, you know, and the other thing, of course, is if you're under a free trade situation, and if it is free trade, now let's be clear about that, not something that some politician calls free trade, and then you come to the border and you've got to pay 2 million tariffs to get through. That's not free trade, okay? That's controlled trade. But if you had free trade w without tariffs and things like that, People would not trade 
involuntarily. You know what I mean? Like if what the person's offering you isn't what you want, you're not going to buy. And if it is what you want, you will buy. And that's why freedom is necessary in order to cr increase the value of every purchase. You can see that as simple with a transaction as simple as, uh, say, a newspaper. A newspaper costs two bucks. Free press on Saturday costs two bucks. Now, you know, I might think it's only worth one buck, <laughs> okay? But if I pay the two bucks to buy that paper, then regardless of what I feel about it or think about it, in reality, I have already, in action, told myself, okay, I value that paper a little bit more than the two bucks that I'm putting in the machine on Saturday morning, which I do to get the TV times. <laughs> okay, so that's the trade. Uh, you know, the paper increases its wealth. They're happy because they, they don't value that paper as much as $2. You see, that's why they gain. So both sides gain. But the minute you have one side forcing the other side to buy the product, already you got a loser on one side and eventually a loser on the other side. Here's another thing I saw in the free press that's a little scary, written by Victoria Sterling on the same kind of thinking. Time to halt huge oil profits, she writes. And, quote, how nice for those oil companies pulling in vast profits while the rest of us are struggling to keep our cars running and food on the table. Why is this being allowed to happen? Well, because we live in a free country, that's the reason, but... Quote, and don't keep telling me it's all due to the war in Iraq or an explosion wherever. There are a lot of us who do have a functional brain which allows us to see more than politicians think we do. Like me, they're fed up with seeing these huge profits going to oil companies while we're being steadily gouged at the pumps. It's time a halt was put to this before there are other serious repercussions. Now, one thing you've got to realize is that those vast profits that she refers to, you know, represents about a 5% return on investment, maybe a little more at certain times. Now, would she be happier knowing that the oil companies were losing money, even if our prices were exactly the same? And without huge profits, just where does she think that the future supplies of oil and energy are going to come from? You know, if you're a consumer, a company's profits, to whoever you do business with, that's, that's irrelevant. What matters is price. And price is ultimately determined by supply and demand, not only of the product in question, but of the exchange medium in which you pay, in other words, of dollars. And remember, credit expansion ran some major peaks over the past 12 to 24 months. That's what's driven a lot of prices up. They've just poured money out into the marketplace and basically given us inflation while hiding it in other commodities. And, you know, the implosion of the housing market in the U.S. is just one of the direct consequences of that whole process. So, you know, I'm just sending out a warning here. We've got to watch out for this protectionism talk. It may sound very appealing, and it sounds like it's going to protect us, uh, but it's really not. You know, I'm just looking at a, at a clip I found here in the free press under the business buzz section of May 4th, and I noticed that London District, uh, London and District Labor Council, quote, is getting active, and they're planning to uh, hold a session or encouraging grassroots social activism this weekend, apparently, at, at Fanshawe College. Patty Dalton is there. And the theme of the event is turning corporate globalization around, the power of grassroots activism. And, you know, again, anti-corporate, anti-business, uh, you know, th these corporations, that's what's putting the food on your table. If you're going to be against that, um, 
boy, I don't know. You're 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 just uh, biting the hand that feeds you. That's all I got to say on that subject. Now, when we come back, I want to talk about a democratic oxymoron, mainly mandatory voting, and we'll be back right after this quick non-commercial break. I love summer, right? Summer summer is like the best season to be unemployed. It's perfect. <laughs> uh, believe me, I know. I've collected UI through all the seasons. Bit of an expert. In fact, they don't even call it UI anymore. That's how long it's been. Right? For decades in this country, we called it unemployment insurance, right? Finally, we changed the name to EI, which makes sense. You should have employment insurance in case you lose your employment. Unemployment insurance sounds like something you'd get to protect yourself in the event that you have to take a job. <laughs> hey, you're hired. I don't think so. I've got unemployment insurance. Canada. Canada is my favorite country of all countries I've been in. Canada is cool. No, nobody ever wants to leave Canada. Huh? Huh? You know what? I don't see too many Canadian refugees out there. Huh? Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and you're invited to join me, 519-661-3600. If you've got any comments or, or items of interest... I uh, saw an article in the, uh, not an article, a debate, I guess, uh, called The Joy of X. And uh, it was ran in the London Free Press point-counterpoint between Laurie Goldstein and Jose Rodriguez. And the subject was uh, basically uh, about whether uh, voting should be mandatory or not. You know, at first I thought, by looking at the headline, it suggested the making of a real hardcore debate, but I was a bit disappointed when I saw sort of what I think are some of the non-points of the whole issue. In the subheadings accompanying each writer's viewpoint are the following summaries. Rod, under Rodriguez's name, they write, quote, By forcing people to vote, we wouldn't be asking them to necessarily back a candidate. A voter can always choose to spoil his or her ballot, end quote. Wasn't well, that nice? Freedom of choice. There you go, see? And Goldstein responds, quote, Mandatory voting is just a way for politicians to duck responsibility for their future, or for their failure, sorry, to make politics relevant, end quote. And thus, with these two utterly irrelevant arguments, the debate proceeded, occupying a little more than a full third of a page in the London Free Press. Now, I understand Goldstein might be considered more of the right-wing type, and uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, it leaves them a little unable to defend our right to vote on the proper philosophical grounds and uh, or moral grounds. Eh? He demonstrates quite aptly, I think, why the right wing has become a sort of a threat to individual freedom in North America today and that the left is sort of openly, uh, you know, attacking, attacking freedom. Now, defending a principle for the wrong reason, I think, is almost tantamount to destroying that principle. And... Um, you know, the closest that Goldstein comes to a relevant argument about mandatory voting occurs when he observes that, quote, the old Soviet Union had what amounted to mandatory voting and that 99% of them voted for the single party on the ballot. Goldstein does correctly state that, quote, forcing us to vote is fundamentally anti-democratic. The right in a free society is to choose to vote, not that you must vote, end quote. 
But for the balance of his argument, I think Goldstein made some very inconsistent compromises and suggested, quote, I'd even be willing to look at proportional representation as many countries have adopted before considering compulsory voting. Uh, well, that's very chivalrous of you, Laurie, but I, I don't think that's the point. Now, please don't misunderstand. I agree with Goldstein's position on the issue, and I even agree with most of his observations and insights. But I think he's missed his target and kind of lost the argument as a consequence. It's not enough just to state that forced voting is not democratic, even though that statement is correct and necessary. But in a debate where your opponent argues that forced voting is democratic, you know, and who explicitly states in direct response to Goldstein's assertion, quote, voting is not a right, it is a duty, a duty many Canadians neglect. And if you think Canadians are not forced to work, I've got a deal on some nice oceanfront property in Saskatchewan for you, end quote. Now, by the way, in using that argument, Rodriguez has made a classic philosophical error. He's confusing what we call the metaphysical with the man-made, which is what all people who preach that might is right generally do as a matter of course. You know, the force of nature, which compels us to all have to be productive and which compels all living creatures to exert effort in the maintenance of their physical survival, is being purposely confused with the force of other human beings, a force of intent. And we call that kind of force a coercive force. And the fact that human beings are forced to eat by nature, you know, forced, quote-unquote, is not evidence of coercion. A hurricane that decimates a town or village is not being coercive. No moral rule has been violated by a storm or by a lightning strike, no matter how, how devastating it might be. However, when some people begin imposing their beliefs in economic and political theories on everyone else, in this case, you know, the belief that voting is a democratic duty, then a moral rule has been violated because... You know, to eliminate choice is to eliminate the very condition of morality itself. And the choices being deprived here extend far beyond being forced to vote when one has already chosen, for example, not to vote. For example, the choice of where you can be on voting day would be compromised. What if you're out of the country for an extended period? What if you get sick that day? And, and just how would mandatory voting be enforced anyway, you know, by, or by any means it could be said to be just? And here's the whole joke of it. If you're a Canadian citizen who happens to miss the vote during one particular election, you are now a criminal in the same way that gun owners were made criminals by establishing a gun registry who failed to register and making uh, you know registry mandatory. You know, you can do that kind of thing. Criminal, well, you know, maybe a strong word, but let's just say at least lawbreakers. But, you know, just another law to disrespect, causing in return a disrespect for legitimate and just laws. And get this. Landed immigrants and visitors and others, anyone who's not a citizen and therefore cannot vote, would not be subject to forced voting laws or to sign up for what would also have to be a forced voter registry so that the government could track down the citizens who failed to vote. And of course, unless you've got a zero tolerance policy, which is the left's way of telling us that they're really 100% intolerant, you'll need, to, you'll need about 10,000 pages of regulations identifying all the acceptable excuses for failing to vote. And Oh, man, you can just see it, eh? People who don't even know about mandatory voting would have to be educated, of course, not about politics or about the philosophical issue of the day, but just about their duty to vote and, you know, thus depriving others of their most fundamental right to decide for themselves whether it's, you know, proper, right, moral, and just, uh, just to go to the polling booth that day. 
uh, given a short list of three or four candidates who all share the same uh, political beliefs anyway. Now, Rodriguez arguing for forced voting is a majoritarian, which is a political belief system that's completely destructive to democracy. And I hear people on the left, right, and center arguing this. You know, if 50% plus one supports something, then it's right. Might is right. Unlimited government, not subject to any restraints. Majoritarians can be found on the left, right, and the so-called center. You'll see them everywhere. And the, the funny thing about a majoritarian, despite all his assertions to the op- opposite of that, you know, he can't really hold any values to which he could be true or fight for them. Because all he can do, being a majoritarian, is to destroy the values of other people. That's all he can do. And I'll, I'll tell you why that is and how it backfires if you really believe that 50% plus one is the answer to everything. I remember way back when Rush Limbaugh, you know, became famous and got up on, uh, you know, just went high in the ratings and stuff. He had a couple of books out. I think one was called um, The Way Things Ought to Be. Another one was called See, I Told You So. And he would put his views in there, and I agreed with some of them and disagreed strongly with others. And one of the issues, for example, that he chose, he did a chapter on abortion, stating his personal, you know, opposition to abortion. Well, if that's true, then you would argue the rational and all the reasons that why you think abortion should be a legal period. But was that the argument he gave us? No, he says we should put it open to a vote. Well, what happened to all the principal talk about abortion is evil, abortion is wrong? Do you put evil things to votes? Is that the way you think? You know, you know where I'm, where I'm going with this. And, you know, if you believe that it's wrong, then it's wrong regardless of how many people share the belief. And this principle applies to any and all, the, all issues, which is why issues like that, by the way, never go away regardless of how people vote, because that's the reality of it. But getting back to forced voting, if your government can force you to vote, then it can force you to say join the army, you know, could maybe do anything, clean the streets for a week, you know, social duty. What's quite alarming is that Rodriguez is perfectly willing to force all citizens to vote solely on the grounds of, quote, poor voter turnout. Quote, a forced vote would give a truer representation of the nation's sentiment, he argues, in what could possibly be the shallowest and most meaningless justification to violate the rights of Canadians that I can think of. Now, Let's be clear about one thing. When we say that we have rights, that implicitly and explicitly means that each individual has a right to say yes or no to a particular proposition or circumstance. If you don't have that option, then you don't have any rights in the matter whatsoever. And we fool ourselves believing we have rights to things that we absolutely have no right to. I hear Canadians always say, and they actually believe this, that they have a right to free education and free health care. No, you don't. And you want to prove it? Just try saying no to the government-run monopoly service. Or trying, try saying yes to some other competing service that the government offers without still having to spend your hard-earned dollars on the state monopoly. Canadians do not, you know, in properly understood, have rights with respect to basic education and health care in this country. What they have is a monopoly that forces them to operate on a single-payer system. And Canadians actually have to leave the country to personally pay for urgent medical services. Not because the services may be unavailable here, which often they are available, but because they are denied a timely, often critical, uh, you know, access in a rationed health care system, which is what we've got. But back to Rodriguez's main point that, you know, that a forced vote would give truer representation of a nation's sentiment. 
this is not only a shallow and meaningless argument, I think it's completely wrong. Voluntary polls of every, every imaginable type have more than aptly, I think, demonstrated their ability to give a true representation of the greater public's opinions on issues, don't you think? With a surprising degree of accuracy in the case of predicting, for example, election outcomes. And forced voting is completely unnecessary if the object is true representation, which of course it is not. You know, when Rodriguez asks, is forcing people to show up at a polling station once every thousand or so days really that much of a hardship, uh, that question misses the whole point. Whether it's easy or hard to vote is irrelevant, but for some people it most definitely will be a hardship, and Rodriguez's indifference to this is very telling. But forcing anyone to do anything, uh, you know, the right thing to do about, you know, but is forcing, sure, I should ask, ask this question, but is forcing anyone to do anything the right thing to do about anything at any time? You know, like, you always force people to do the right thing? Because if you can force people to do X on some given day, then by what possible right do those same citizens have to resist being forced to do Y on another particular day? On what possible grounds could they objectively protect their minds or bodies from prying government interventionists? They've got no objective grounds whatsoever other than appealing, you know, to the mercy or whim of some government prosecutor. And that's why I repeatedly say, ladies and gentlemen, that there is no slippery slope. The switch is always either on or off. You've either got rights or you don't. And the fact that you haven't been, you know, electrocuted yet because of the big government switch being in the on position doesn't mean that you won't be in for a shock when you wake up one day to realize your whole life is in the hands of others who are basically acting in their own interests and not in yours. And basically, you know, zap, game over, lights out for you. So you know, being forced to vote effectively eliminates having a right to vote or having any rights at all for that matter. I think it's morally wrong for some people to initiate the use of force, which he openly advocates and repeatedly uses the, the word in a complete moral vacuum, as though, you know, you can just use it just to, to get a statistic up, you know, against others who haven't done anything wrong. You know, they haven't done an injustice to anybody. And being punished for things you don't do beyond, uh, you know, the obvious issues of negligence or legal contract is unjust. And, uh, you know, that's why you have two kinds of people when it comes to voters. You have the majoritarians who want the government to do what the majority wants, and then there are the definite minorities who want the government to do what is right, whatever they think that is. It might not be right, but it's what they operate on a principle. And if you personally value your vote, then consider how forced voting would devalue your vote by more than half, given that fewer than half of eligible voters vote now where once you were one voter, say, among 20,000 active voters in a particular ward or riding, under forced 100% voting, you would now be one voter among, say, 45,000 voters in your riding, which makes your vote over 200% less influential in the outcome of an election. Same thing happens to money when you inflate it. Same thing happens to your vote. And your vote becomes devalued far beyond the simple two-dimensional situation I just described. But it's also devalued by the fact that voters who are forced to vote in the first place are less likely to know, care, understand, or even be aware of the actual issues facing our governments. Voters of this nature are much easier to manipulate into supporting ridiculous issues like global warming and other anti-capitalist, anti-freedom kind of policies which is exactly why I think majoritarians of the left, right, and center support measures to increase the number of voters, both in the hopes that their particular cause will win and in the hopes that 
irrational, uninformed voters will outnumber a voluntarily increasing number of rational voters, which is always going to happen, you know, who might possibly start showing up at the polls in an attempt to reverse the direction we're going in. I think it's no coincidence that otherwise relatively rational governments like those of Australia have, you know, jumped on the global warming religion bandwagon because, you know, they've had their right to vote taken away from them through forced voting legislation. And I think forced voting creates flocks of sheep. Then, of course, there's a fundamental problem itself, which no one wants to face, that there really are no real or meaningful political options being offered in the political marketplace. Having the same three or four choices, each representing the same single philosophy, uh, you know, why are you so surprised if nobody shows up to shop at your store, you know? And I guess the scariest part of all this that I haven't even approached is, is, you know, the real reason that the vast majority of people vote the way they do, which has nothing to do with philosophy, policy, or anything to do with democratic concerns. Most voters just use the old hammerhead approach. They'll vote for the party they think can block the party they don't like from getting into power. They don't care what the party they vote for stands for, only what the party they vote against stands for. And because they fail to see the obvious that the party they voted for is just the same as they part, you know, when they voted against, they continually become disillusioned with politics. I've seen it over and over again. You know, contrary to the assertions of Pete Townsend and the Who, by the way, you know, voters do get fooled again, in, over and over, incessantly, like a housefly who can't see the glass that it keeps trying to get through, and it dies continually trying to do the same thing over and over again. Because, you know, like the voter, I'm told that a fly's memory is said to be very short. So mandatory voting? No, just wrong. The closest thing we have to it now is the Canadian census, which is also mandatory, despite the fact that I and many others have been quite public about not participating in it, which the government uses largely to do things that governments should never do, like manage the economy and transfer wealth from some groups of peoples to others, based on everything from income, race, culture, and creed. But my census tale is a story for another day. In fact, I think I might have already told it on a previous show. Time for a break. Going to talk about television and what entertains you and who's paying for it when we come back after these breaks and some ads. We'll be back shortly. How many people old enough to remember when the TV actually went off at some point? Huh? Every night the TV in the old days used to go off at some point. It'd be the national anthem, oh, God, and then the test pattern, boop. It used to wake you up like a alarm clock. <laughs> I'm an idiot. I have to go to bed. I have to go to work tomorrow. I'm an idiot. You know? Nowadays, the TV never goes off. You sit there. <sighs> Sun coming up. Oh, my God. I have to go to work. Splash some water in your face. I got a crick in my neck. Oh, my God. And that's why they put those stupid infomercials on at 3 or 4 in the morning, because they know you're half asleep. You don't buy anything. They showed you that stuff at 7 p.m. You go, this is crap. I'm not buying this. 3 or 4 in the morning. Oh, I'm gonna... Some guy's spraying his head. Oh, I'm buying that. I don't need it now, but you never know. Three songs from the 70s I, I, I like. Oh, I'll buy that. They're right. I, it costs a lot of money to get that on one CD. They're right. When they're right, they're right. I'll tell you. Can't argue with logic. I'm buying stuff just to see how it works. And there was the stuff that, you know, took out the egg, egg yolk out of the, the shell without breaking it. Some voodoo stuff there. I don't know how that worked. <laughs> Up, girls gone wild.
So, I also watch the Discovery Channel. Do you watch it? You know what I've discovered? I need a girlfriend. That's what I've discovered. Once you've watched everything on the planet have sex, I think it's your turn. Bugs, rocks, plants, everything's getting laid. Like that young boy said in the Bible. Yes, even the dust mite. That's right, it lives in your eyebrow. Things are having sex on you while you're not having sex. Welcome back to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation. That's exactly what caller John has done before we get into our next subject. Hello, John. Are you there? Hi, Bob. How are you today? Not too bad. What can I do for you today? Well, a question. You mentioned that you don't participate in the census. Uh, Can you tell me what uh, penalties the government uh, can impose for someone who doesn't? Uh, theoretically, I understand a uh, $500 fine plus even time in jail, etc. I, I went through all this very technically before, but, but yes, there are penalties. Yes. And approximately 11,000 people in the city of London did not fill their census the last time. Okay. Now, you mentioned that fine. Uh, is that a theoretical proposition, or do people actually have that levied against them? I am aware of only one person who's had it levied against them, and that was a London developer some, oh, man, I think you've got to go back about 20, 25 years, if not even longer. I'm getting, all, I'm getting up there, you know. <laughs> yeah, good. Thank okay. you uh, very much, Bob. Okay, thanks, John. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, people are wondering about that. I've never uh, really heard about too many people getting uh, in, in big trouble with the census people. Now, I've got to tell you, I was harassed. I mean, I I would come home and standing at my apartment door would be the census guy. And the problem, my particular problem was I would have answered some of the basics, you know, where I was. But unfortunately, I got the long form. And they wanted to know what I did every minute of every day and where I lived and what corner of what street I was on. It was just outrageous. But uh, that's a whole other story. Got to get back to the main one now. Bill C-10 the federal bill which will allow government to pull financial aid from any film it finds offensive, has been criticized as being a direct assault on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms by Canadian director David Cronenberg. Mary Malone, co-chair of the London Canadian Film Festival, calls it censorship. Quote, let's nip the tax credit censors in the bud. Canadian taxes should support Canadian values. The first one being inclusiveness. Get the moral guardians out of the theater. They hate it there anyway, and let audiences decide. She writes in a letter to the editor of London Free Press on March 6th. And then there's columnist Michael Corrin, who doesn't think it's a big deal at all, you know, in the end, but writes in the March 8th Free Press that, the quote, the conservatives have announced that they will be expanding slightly the criteria for denying tax credits to Canadian films that include gratuitous violence, significant sexual content, and that lack an educational purpose or involve the denigration of an identifiable group. Hardly draconian stuff, merely arguing that if people want to produce pornographic garbage, they should do it on their own dollar. Nor is this censorship. Nothing is being banned but an intelligent use of tax dollars. It actually does say intelligent. I think it should have said unintelligent because he's banning it, right? But he goes on, the screams of protest, however, can be heard from cocktail parties coast to coast. How dare a tiny minority of people dictate what we can see and how dare the government control art? Quite so, the government should not be involved at all. If you want to make it, write it, record it, fine. Do it yourself. 
As for the tiny minority, it is indeed time that the usual types with their radical sexual agenda and hatred for what they see as orthodoxy lost their special privileges, end quote. Now, I don't know why Corrin couldn't just have left it alone without having to, you know, comment on those who hate orthodoxy. But in another call on April 19th, he uses Showcase's TV program uh, Kink. I don't know if you've ever seen that as an example of TV shows that shouldn't get government help. And he says, quote, I mention this because the program in question is one of those that currently enjoys a tax credit. In other words, it receives public funding from you and me. There, are, there are also are some quality products that are given a tax credit, but the point about the government's proposed C-10 legislation is that it doesn't threaten anything that is good. Oh, boy. None of this, by the way, has anything to do with censorship, says Corrin. That's when the state forbids free, free freedom of speech and expression, not when the state refuses to fund all speech and expression. On this final point, I really have to depart with Corn. However, he is half right. And it's funny, I was on a show once, he said the same thing to me. I think you're half right. It's absolutely true that government refusal to fund speech is not censorship. That's not censorship. But the issue is not censorship. It is freedom of speech. And when you keep that point in mind, I think the rest of the issue becomes a little clearer. Clearly, when the state directly forbids free speech and expression, then you don't have freedom of speech. But it is equally true that when the state funds arts and funds entertainment or ideas that freedom of speech also does not exist. Government subsidized speech is not free speech. Speech funded by voluntary means, by theater memberships and the like, private grants, you know, that kind of thing, tickets, you know, that's free speech. It's one thing to be against censorship. And in that respect, I quite frankly, have found Michael Korn to be fairly principled and consistent, despite his personal feelings about pornography and the like and all those other things he doesn't like. But it's quite another to be in favor of freedom of speech, since censorship alone is not the only enemy of free speech. So, you know, whether it's, uh, it's one cent or whether it's a billion dollars, when the government takes, you know, money from its citizens by force to subsidize someone else's interests, no matter how good or valuable you might think it is, The money that's been taken from them has already deprived them of a measure of their freedom by virtue of the fact they could have thought of plenty of things to, you know, to spend their own money on. Isn't that what you work for, for your own goals, for your own goals in life? And so when somebody's so-called freedom of expression is dependent upon depriving others of their own opportunities and choices, I think we make a great moral error to call that kind of speech free speech. It is not free speech. And... uh, you know, it's funny, because here in the city of London, you, you see another issue <laughs> bringing up its ugly head again. City Council has just voted to spend $70,000 to justify spending another $70 million on a performing arts center. Gord Hume, you know, he's calling it a business plan, when in fact he's counting on federal, provincial, and municipal taxpayers to foot the bill. Again, it's not a voluntary venture. That disqualifies it from being called a business plan. You know, no wonder business gets such a bad rap. Whenever you know they're in cahoots with the government and it's business, it always takes the rap too. Whenever that partnership exists, which is why government likes it so much. But um, you know, if you're being forced to buy somebody's products, even if you don't use them, what is? How what does it take to convince anybody that that's the wrong thing to do? Bud Polhill, you know, he says it doesn't take courage to spend other people's money during a media interview yesterday, and referring to Gord Hume's advocacy of the Performing Arts Center. 
you know, Hume thinks it's reasonable and fair that Londoners should fork out 25% of these costs plus land costs. And he's been the principal driving force behind the city spending millions on arts and culture. So if you're wondering why your municipal taxes look more like a mortgage payment that you'll never pay off, make sure you keep that in mind. Uh, our governments today have completely immersed themselves in the entertainment business, uh, regulating, controlling, banning, and subsidizing all forms of art and culture. Can this be called censorship? Well, maybe not. Would I call it free speech? A free market of ideas? Definitely not. Leave that one at that, and when we come back after this quick non-commercial break, on to a little commentary on schools, and if I still have a minute or two after that, I might talk a bit about TV. You know what I saw the other day? I saw the Ricky Lake Show. Oh, my God, yeah? And at the end of the show, they tell you to send in for written transcripts of the show. For what, in case you want to act them out with your friends or something, huh? That's okay. Uh, you can order the show on video cassette too. Say at the end of the show, if you'd like a copy of the Ricky Lake Show on home video, send $24.99 to I'm Too Stupid to Tape It Myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. have been so cool, they've been so supportive all through my career, but I remember in high school, I used to embarrass them all the time because every report card that came home always had the same thing in the comment thing, Mike has an attitude problem. <laughs> my parents used to always write in, yeah, we know. <laughs> Think he just saves it for you? <laughs> the funniest thing I remember in high school when I got kicked out of grade 12, the vice principal, the last thing he said to me as he was kicking me out was, you think you're going to find a job where you can tell jokes all day? <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da, we're back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Supporting private schools, I saw in a letter to the editor to, I believe, The Londoner, written by Nizreen Aldeeb on April 16th. And this letter really caught my attention because it so uh, epitomized so many of the misunderstandings a lot of people have about the way our education system is funded and what it's all about that I thought it deserved a little attention. The writer writes, quote, Every day in the news we hear about the controversy surrounding private schools. Why don't private schools deserve or need the funds, yet public schools are already funded? The cause of this controversy is the government and the ministries which don't want to fund private schools. Students, teachers, and the parents who pay for their children to attend these schools are involved. Now, the government wants to give the publicly funded schools more money when they could not at least start funding the private schools. Catholic private schools are fully funded by the government, but other religious schools are not funded at all. Catholic schools are private because only Catholic students can attend them. So what does the government have against other private schools? Well, I've been to both private and public schools, and there's a big difference, he continues. In, in private schools, classes are small. There are not many facilities. There are smaller gyms and cafeterias. There are fewer washrooms and teachers, fewer students. Teachers are paid less, and students have to pay fees. In public schools, students don't pay. Teachers get paid more. And there are more facilities in private schools. Isn't it obvious that private schools need the money more than public schools? 
The Charter of Rights and Freedoms says that everyone has the right to free education, which in this case some aren't getting simply because they want to practice their religion or put their students in a school where they can be able to speak the language, their language with their classmates, end quote. Now, this letter contains so many misunderstandings of the, fact it's, of the facts, it's difficult to know where to begin. Again, my purpose is not to pick on the writer, to, but to address certain of these misunderstandings that I happen to know are shared by a great number of people out there. Uh, number one, every day in the news we hear about public versus private education, the writer says. And I have to say, really? Every day? <laughs> my file folder on, you know, that I collect of newspaper clippings on the subject uh, uh, of education in total, let alone any public-private debate, is possibly the thinnest of all the files I keep on the various subjects I follow, which is kind of scary when you think about it. Uh, with, with, of course, the l- recent blips in faith funding and AFRI-centered uh, school funding, which were really in different issues that became entangled in the schooling controversy. Now, the second point is, in philosophy, it is known as the law of identity. A is A. Simply put, that means a cat is a cat and a dog is a dog. Okay? Similarly, a private school is, by definition, one that does not receive government funding. That's what makes it private. It's not about who attends. As soon as, as, soon as a private school begins to receive government funding, it's no longer a private school. It's a public school, a state school, a government-run school. And, I mean, that's just a matter of identity. That's the thing that makes one thing one thing and the other thing the other thing. Now, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms really says nothing about the right to a free education. Section 23.1, Minority Language Educational Rights, refers only to language rights within the, quote, educational facilities provided out of public funds, end quote. It does not say that public funds will be available for any and all privately established institutions calling themselves schools, nor does it say that a particular person has a right to a free education. You may well still have to pay tuition fees to get into a facility that's paid for by public funds. I mean, that's what's done often with uh, colleges, universities, you know, and performing arts centers, for example. You know, you pay for them with your taxes. Are they going to let you in for free down at the John Labatt Center when, when they can sell the tickets to the rafters? You're not getting in there for free. So, and these are publicly funded facilities as well. So the connection between public funding and free is not a given, and that's very important to understand. But finally, of course, the big issue. And, you know, I I can say this about every issue. The, The desire to want something for free at the expense of others is patently immoral. Let's get that straight. When you when you get something for free, somebody else has to pay for it. And that somebody else isn't getting the product in question. And this is known by all common parlance as an injustice, okay? And... Worse, what you get for free through government edict imposes a burden and obligation on others who, like anyone else, have their own priorities of what they want to do with their lives, time, and money, each of which is being expropriated from them for people who want things for free. Now, I think there's nothing more ironic to my way of thinking than to hear so-called religious people in particular who all want governments to fund their schools when one of the Ten Commandments clearly says, Thou shalt not steal. Now, I don't know, someone must have hidden the small print, you know, down at the bottom of the tablet that reads, unless approved of by a majority, a democratic majority, you know. Can you see how majoritarianism just creeps into all anti-moral positions? 
that's the trend of politics. That's how it goes. I don't even like the words uh, education being used in the context of funding because what's really being funded, of course, is not education but schools, okay? If the purpose of our school system was really education, I think it would. Uh, the primary objective would be to get the kids through as fast as you possibly could. Cram that education into their heads in six years if you can do it, as I understand was once done in the past. Now, I've, I confess I really haven't really addressed uh, this whole specific issue of education to the degree it merits on, the sh on this show as yet, and I think it's worth a whole show or two. But rest assured, we are certainly going to be looking at that issue in the future. Now, how are we doing for time here? I think we've got a, just a couple minutes left. And uh, just getting back to uh, the subject we were talking about just a little while ago, the whole uh, TV entertainment issue and uh, tax subsidies. Uh, I don't know, don't know if you heard, well, not about the tax subsidies, but entertainment itself. I just heard uh, earlier this week that apparently the U.S. TV networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, and the like, have reported a 20% drop in viewership from this time last year. And, uh, you know, this is, I think, primarily caused because, of course, the writer's strike and, and there were great interruptions in, uh, in getting out uh, various TV shows and stuff. So I don't know what you're watching these days. I've been trying to pick up on, on some of the shows that are out there. Uh, one show that I predicted on this show, one TV show I predicted on this show that I thought might be interesting and it really was a surprise was one that uh, was not in a genre that I particularly like because it's about vampires and stuff like that. But boy, this show has proven to be a, a, a tremendously good show. I think every episode is better than the last one. It started off solid, and it's called Moonlight. If you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. It's, it's a different genre. It doesn't really do with vampires what you might have seen done with a lot of other shows. And I know this is one show I've never mentioned, never heard it talked about anywhere. It's just completely under the radar. This is another show I'm talking about now. I haven't even seen an article on it or a review. You don't hear people talking about it. And they're going into their third season. And I think if you're looking for something different, you want to have uh, an enjoyable evening with the family, have a chuckle, uh, have a bit of an adventure, this show's a lot of fun. And it's called Eureka. I don't know if you've seen it, don't know if you've heard of it runs on the Space Network, I think, right now. And it is, if I was going to describe it in any way, kind of like a science fiction comedy. Comedy drama. No laugh tracker. It's, it's, it's very well done. Very endearing. And the reason it's called Eureka is because it takes place in the town of Eureka, which is populated by a whole bunch of crazy inventors who invent everything from black holes to invisibility suits to uh, you name it. Anything can happen in the town of Eureka, and the poor guy who's the sheriff has to take care of all these matters and keep the town together, and he really doesn't understand science at all. And it makes for a very funny show, and act, you know, it's, got, it's got its drama to, to it as well. But if you haven't seen this show, I think it's one of those ones that uh, is just a delight. I know I and my friends that have been watching it have just gotten a kick out of it. Nothing great on the face of the earth, but boy, you can have a fun, fun hour, just like you do when you're listening to this show. That's it for this week, folks. So please join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, stay right, be right, think right, act right, and take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I think a rotisserie is like a really morbid Ferris wheel for chickens. <laughs> it's a very scary piece of machinery. We will take the chicken, impale it, and then rotate it. 
and I'll be damned if I'm not hungry. <laughs> because spinning chicken carcasses make my mouth water. <laughs> <laughs>